Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words from the Gospel of John as we continue. I'm in John chapter 12, and I'll be reading verses 20 through 33. These are the words of God. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying but what death he would die. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing now. Heavenly Father, your word is before us. We pray that you would use that word like a good surgeon and open hearts, cut out unbelief and sin, heal and restore and grant faith, make us whole all who would hear with faith. And so even grant that faith in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Advent season is upon us, the beginning of the church year. And that's why there's a Christmas tree. Yeah. Advent and the preparation of Christmas is a wonderful time to set up celebrations remembrances, memories, set traditions, be with one another in family. It's oftentimes, uh, it, it is a time often to, uh, to go through a series on Advent, which I'm not going to do this year. I'm going to continue on in the Gospel of John, at least for the next couple of Sundays, because right here is an Advent ser- sermon, actually, a sermon about the reason for the season, a sermon about why Christ came, why he was made incarnate, why he was made a man. And so here's an Advent sermon this morning. The imputation, here, here it is, the imputation of your gross sin and the full brunt of God's righteous and holy wrath placed upon the incarnate God, Son of God, that is the reason for the season. So Merry Christmas. Even if you don't find this on a Christmas card, that is exactly what this is all about exactly what this is all about. This is why Jesus would say in this passage, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. This was the reason for his coming, for the Son of Man to be glorified. But what did that mean? And as we go through this passage, we certainly see that his disciples and the Greeks and the Pharisees, they didn't know for sure what he meant. At least they didn't know fully what he meant. They didn't know where he was headed this very week, this Passion Week that we find ourselves in, in the Gospel of John. The passage we're in right now begins right on the heels of the worrying Pharisees, that the whole world has gone after him. Recall in the verse just before, this is after 
Um, the, the triumphal entry, the, the great throng all around Jesus, hailing him as the king who has come into, into the city, um, the one who, whom they have been singing about through Psalm 118, year after year after year, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save us, O God, Hosanna, the king of Israel. Pharisees trying to stop Jesus, trying to stop this movement for fear of, a, of an attempted insurrection and then the bringing on of the full brunt of the Roman Empire upon them it has been trying to stop this Jesus from coming and they turn to one another and they say in verse 19, you see that you are accomplishing nothing, they say to one another. Look, the world has gone after him. We've seen how John just uses deep irony all the time throughout his gospel, and he does so again now. Because right on the heels of that, verse 20, we are told, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. These, these Greeks have, have come. Um, they could be God-fearing Greeks. They could be Jews who, in the dispersion, have now uh, become a part of the nation of Greece or the people of, of Greece at that time. But they're still coming uh, for the annual feast, and they come. And so right, right here, a portion of the world, the Greeks are doing just what the Pharisees have said is going to happen. And so Jesus' answer to the request of the Greeks, though, is, is striking in that he had often said that his hour had not yet come. Jesus is going to say, um, my hour has come in verse, uh, verse 23, but he had, he had said uh, in, in verse, uh, back when, uh, at the wedding of Cana, when the water was turned into wine, and his mother said, you know, here's the opportunity, go ahead, go ahead, son. And he said, no, my hour has not come. Uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when his brothers told him, you should go up to the feast, and, and, and Jesus didn't go for several days, he said, because my hour has not come. When the, when the authorities failed to arrest him in, in chapter 8, at the end of that feast, uh, John tells us that they did not arrest him because he, his hour had not yet come. And what was this hour that, had, that now had come, though, in verse 23? It says in verse 23, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. It is now time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, historically for the Jews, there is a whole bunch of things then coming together. You have, you have the deliverer that is coming in, you have the, the raising of the palm branches, which, was, which occurred when, um, d- during the time of the Maccabees, when they, when they, put a, when they were able to, in the Maccabean revolt, revolt, when they stopped the Greeks um, from taking over Jerusalem and set them back, when, when the, the uh, temple was desecrated by the Greeks and then they reestablished the, the temple in, in righteousness, they waved these palm branches. They stopped the Greeks. And now we have Greeks coming. Greeks coming in to worship God. Well, that, that promise that God would, would deliver um, uh, his people from these different empires goes all the way back. The prophecies for that go all the way back to Daniel. And in, the, in, in Daniel, there's this final prophecy with regard to the Son of Man and the lifting up of the Son of Man, the glorification of the Son of Man. So the Greeks have come, and John wants you to put all these things together. John wants you to see the Pharisees say, look, the whole world's going after him. We can't stop this. And then Greeks come, and they approach Jesus. And then Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, okay, great, bring the Greeks to me, and I'll start talking to them. He gives this, this weird answer, it looks like, to us. In verse 23, he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What kind of answer is that? When the, when the, when the Greeks say, we would see Jesus. 
Well, what, what he's saying is that all of, these, all of these prophecies are now coming together. And the Son of Man being glorified, when he would say that, listen to Daniel chapter 7. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one, like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So this is a, this is a prophecy of, of the Christ, the Son of Man, ascending to the throne of the Ancient of Days. And then in verse 14, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So, so Jesus is, is playing off of these, and John's putting all this together for us in his dialogue to, to, to say this great time of glorification is about to take place. But, but what's different is, that his hearers were, were then imagining this triumphal entry moving towards what would be a military overthrow and world conquest that had been promised to the Son of Man, a world conquest. We put down the Romans, and now we would be the ones who would rule the world. Yet, Jesus says right on the, uh, sure, right after that, he says in verse 24, everything starts to take this twist now. Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So that was not the glory that, that Jesus had in mind at all. That, that he was now riding in, he was now going to put down all the enemies of, of, the, of this throng, this crowd, and he was going to establish his kingdom. That wasn't the glory that he had in mind. He had a much deeper glory. But in order for that deeper glory to arrive, the grain of wheat, he said, had to be buried and die. Because that seed, he says, would then produce much fruit. Even as we sing and celebrate a great, great harvest celebration like Thanksgiving, and we sing these hymns about the seed being planted, we're reminded that a small seed brings forth great fruit, but only a small seed brings great, forth great fruit only if it's buried and dies. And Jesus says, this is the way, this glory that I'm talking about, the, the, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified is tied to that, to a burial and to a death that would then produce much grain. So, um, the thing that displayed the true glory of the Son of Man would, of course, be his crucifixion. And the thing that displays the true glory of the Son of Man is the declaration of his crucifixion. We'll see that a little bit more in, uh, in, in a few minutes. But I want you to think about that for a second. The thing that displayed the true glory of the Son of Man was going to be his crucifixion. That would be the glory. Not only that, but the declaration of the crucifixion of the Son of Man is a declaration of his glory. This would be his self-serving sacrifice, making atonement for sin. And so he says in verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We read that verse, and you oftentimes think that this is a principle or a great, a great tome to kind of keep in your, in your own mind, that, that I, if I love my life, I'm going to lose it, that if I hate my life in this world, that I'll keep it for eternal life. That's a principle by which we should all live. But really what Jesus is doing, is, first of all, he's identifying himself. He's identifying who he is. He is the one who is willing to hate his life in this world 
to lose it all in this world in order that he might gain for himself and for his people eternal life, eternal life for his, for, for his kingdom. Had he simply come and established his kingship, which he had the authority to do, which he had the power to do, then he would have lived and he would have been a king and he would have had power, earthly power, and it would have accomplished nothing with regard to the salvation of his people. Because unless he died, unless he bore our sins in his death, unless he bore the, the, the wrath of God and the, and the payment and the penalty for our sin, then it, did, it wouldn't matter if he had rode in and been king for some period of time. It wouldn't have accomplished anything eternal for any of his people. In order for his glory to be revealed, the only way for his glory to be revealed would be for Christ to hate his life, to turn it all over, to be done with his life for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of his people, for the sake of those for whom he would die. So this is first about Jesus, whose humiliation then resulted in the great exaltation. Again, Paul would say, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above, a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What reveals the glory of, of Christ? Well, we would think of it, we think of it as his exaltation and his rule, but his glory begins with his humiliation. There is glory in his hating his life. There is glory in his giving of himself and, and, and laying it all down for others. And, of course, we are then to follow that example um, as well. Because in verse 26, he says, here's what he says, If anyone serves me, these Greeks who have just come, we would see Jesus. Well, if you would serve me, then follow me. Follow me where I am going. He would say that to all of us as well. Those who would serve me, those who would be my disciples, follow me. Follow me, and where I am, there, uh, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So, this ex extends then to the followers of Jesus. What he is going through, his followers must also go through. The, the path to the cross is not just the path that Jesus would walk. The exaltation they all had felt with the raising of Lazarus from the grave and from the tr glorious triumphal entry like a king riding into Jerusalem made many want to see Jesus. I see his glory then. I see his exaltation then. I see him winning. He's on the winning side. I want to be with Jesus. Well, would they want to be with Jesus a few days later as he hung on the cross? Well, of course, we know that on the night of his arrest, we are told that the shepherd was struck and the sheep were scattered. They didn't follow Jesus. Even when John, and we'll, we'll see in this gospel, John and Peter go in, Peter stands at a distance and he'll even deny his association with Jesus. The Greeks said, we would see Jesus. And Jesus says, if you want to see me, if you want to serve me, if you want to be with me, follow me. And the question remains with us as well. Would you see Jesus? Well, would you see Jesus and follow him wherever he is going? Would you be like him and with him? Would you have followed him then? Would you have followed him just days later? 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so this is the story of the glory of the seed that dies. The glory of the seed that dies. Listen to verse 27 and following. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, for, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. For Jesus, he knows. He knows what he's telling everybody else to come and follow him to do. He knows where he is going. He knows of his coming crucifixion. It's before his own eyes. But it is not just the horrifying death that he must endure that causes his soul to be troubled and consider asking the Father to save him from this hour. Well, you know, many stories of, of many martyrs of the faith who stood strong before their uh, accusers. They, they stood strong and faithfully before um, the, whatever torture was brought upon them. They stayed strong up until their death. And Jesus here, it says, my soul is troubled. And he's in great travail. Was he not as, is, is he not as strong? Is he not as courageous as others? Well, he's about to enter into something that nobody else was going to have to enter into. The greatest part of his travail and later his suffering on the cross was not simply the crucifixion, as terrible as that was, but the receipt of God's full wrath for our sins. Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is also fully human. And just as other men feel their stomachs turning before some dreadful ordeal, so Christ trembled as he contemplated the coming judgment, the judgment that he would face. My soul is troubled. But what shall he say? Father, save me from this hour. John will not record the prayer that Jesus will say in the Garden of Gethsemane, but here is very similar. Father, if there's any way this cup should pass, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew what was before him, what must take place in order for the salvation that he had been sent to bring to the world uh, to take place. He knew what would cost him, and it was hard. And I, and I think um, it was J.C. Ryle who, who said um, that we learn from the Lord's example here that inward conflict of soul is not necessarily in itself a, single, a sinful thing. When you are struggling to stand and do what is right no matter the cost, when you are standing before someone who might accuse you or might be in a place to put you out or down or lose um, a job, a reputation, a friendship, because you're going to stand faithfully and do what the Father has called you to do and it causes your stomach to turn and wonder whether or not it's worth it and be comforted that Jesus these things crossed Jesus' mind as well. And know that he stands with you as you then turn and say, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. And so he turns and he cries out, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. And this is how, how will you stand when it's time to make that, what's, what's going to be the greatest motivation for us to stand faithful in a day when you have to stand for Christ at a cost, when you have to stand for God's ways at a cost? What, what is going to be the best motivation? Well, look at what, what it, Jesus' motivation is. No, Father, 
Glorify your name. What keeps him obedient? What keeps Jesus faithful? What is his overriding passion? The thing that drove Christ's resolve was his chief end, to glorify God, which is our chief end. The man born blind in chapter 9 was blind so that the works of God should be revealed in him, so that the glory of God might be revealed. Just as with that incident, remember, Jesus was answering the question, why was this man born blind? And, and Jesus, rather than speaking to the cause, spoke towards the purpose. Remember that? Well, in the same way, Jesus is not speaking towards the cause. That, that his, his, his moment of, of this passion is not towards the cause of what is to take place, but rather the purpose. Rather, the purpose, what is going to take place. So Jesus looks for the purpose and not the cause of the trouble or trial. Why did Lazarus die? Well, chapter 11 says, for the glory of God, Jesus says. But this is, to to look to the purpose. Oh, this this person is going to go through this travail, this trouble, but it's all for the glory of God. And you know how easy it is to say to somebody in the midst of their trouble, good words, good words, but you know, it's much easier to say to someone else, well, you know, all things work together for good. And so I know you're going through this, but God is, God is with you, and, and all things work together for good. Easier to say to someone else than to yourself <laughs> in the midst of it. Because when you're in the midst of your own storm, well, that's when you need to hear it from others. But when you're in the midst of your own storm, that's when it's hardest to see. But what motivated Jesus in the midst of his storm? to stay the storm. What I want is God's glory. And if all things work together for good and for the glory of God, I'll stay the storm. Father, if you'd be glorified, I'll stay the storm. Could you say that with Jesus? Could you say that in the storms of your life? If this will bring glory to your name, I'll stay the storm. Bring it. Bring it that it might bring glory to your, to your name because nothing do I, there is nothing I want more than the glorification of my Father in heaven. I am most satisfied if I, see, if I see God glorified in my life, in my actions. And in the midst of a storm, when it, when it even looks to me like this wouldn't glorify God, I will trust that he will bring glory to his name in the midst of it. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's speaking of as he says to the Father, glorify your name. Now Jesus is facing his own trial, and it weighs heavy, as hardships always do. Looking to the purpose, that is the glory of God and the salvation of the elect, and not the cause, which be the terrible and holy judgment of God, Jesus resolves, Father, glorify your name. So both are taking place. We have, we have the salvation of the elect that is in the forefront of his mind that is going to bring the glory, there's going to bring glory to God. And it is that that overrides the fact that there is going to have to be a death, his death, the death of the perfect one to pay for the sins and to bring, to bring forth the holy and righteous judgment of God upon the sin that he bears for us. That's what causes Jesus to resolve. Father, glorify your name. Just as God was glorified in the incarnation with the song of angels, glory to God in the highest, so he, himself, so he spoke himself at the initiation into Christ's ministry. When Christ was baptized, we had the voice of the Father come down from heaven. 
And then at his transfiguration, again, Peter and James and John hear the voice of God, the Father. And then again here, the Father's voice is heard like thunder or the voice of an angel. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again, showing us that, that the path that Jesus was going to take to the cross was the path the Father wanted him to take. There was no, um, there was no mix-up. There, there was no missing. God, God, God wasn't absent that day, nor was he absent on, on Good Friday as Jesus hangs on the cross. And of course, he was not absent in the resurrection. This was all the plan of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Yes, yes, I will glorify it. I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again, the Father says. God's name is glorified, and in fact, that is His chief end as well. That's Jesus' chief end as well. Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so God, re God requires and is owed glory, all glory, because of all of creation. But then also in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, speaking of uh, the uh, foreordaining election of all, the, all that God would save, the work of the redemption of Jesus' blood to save all of those, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's the first half of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Three times it will say that these things take place to the glory of God, or rather, to the praise of His gracious glory by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. So, Jesus, or so God is to receive all glory because of all of creation, and he's to receive all glory because of the great work of redemption on the cross. Jesus, real, real, Jesus realizing this, is saying, glorify your name, Father, through my crucifixion. Glorify your name because of what it is going to bring forth. You know, we've talked about this many times, but it struck me, Ephesians 12, Ephesians 12 says, but for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You remember that? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And I've always thought, and it's true, that the joy, the joy was, well, it was going to be worth going to the cross because look at all of the elect. Look at all of those that, he, that I'm dying for. Look at all those that I'm bringing into eternal life. But I don't think that was his deepest joy. It, 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 was, it, was, it was going to be the means to his deepest joy. Because the means to his deepest joy was going to be the salvation of these people. Your salvation. But the means of that, that, that's the means. What was the end? The glory of God. The glory of God. This ties into what, what Tyler was saying. When, 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 it, when you receive a gift, when you receive a gift, any gift you receive... God may have used the means of a husband, a wife, a spouse, a father, or brothers. He may use all kinds of means of those who actually have hearts for you and they want to give things to you and bless you. But ultimately, ultimately, every good and gracious gift that you've ever received has come from the hand of the Heavenly Father, or your Heavenly Father. And all glory is to be given to Him. All thanks is to be given to Him, to render to Him for what He is doing. Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, what was going to bring him his greatest, deepest joy? He was going to see God glorified. 
It is what is going to keep him hanging on the cross. It is what is going to keep him there until his last breath. The glory of God more than anything else. And if this work will bring glory to God, I'll stay the storm. I'll stay the storm. Jesus tells them, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Again, the stamp of approval of this God that you say you serve is, comes forth in this voice. But then he says, now is the judgment of this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. The judgment of the world. He says, now is the judgment of this world and all also. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This phrase, this first phrase, the judgment of this world, marks the imputation of man's sin to Christ. And tells us this is why God so loved the world. Why did God so love the world? Because he, or, or how do we see that he loved the world? He sends his son to have all of the, our sins imputed, transferred, credited to Christ. That his righteous judgment would still be poured out upon the world, but it would be done so in a saving act for all of his people. The only way, the only way that we could be saved is if there was be a righteous one that would take our place, that, that would be able to, in our place, take, take upon himself our sin because he did not have any sin. And then full of that sin, be able to bear the righteous judgment of, of his father upon him. But the other wonderful thing that he's saying here is that also the ruler of this world will be cast out. From the time of the fall, when Satan deceives Eve and, and, and then Adam rebels against God the Father and follows Satan by taking the fruit from his wife, not standing and, and crushing the, the, the head of the serpent at all, but rather entering into his offer. At that moment, the vice regent of the world, who was Adam, stepped down off of that throne. And the new ruler of this world was Satan the serpent. Until the time that the second Adam comes. And when the second Adam comes also as vice regent and pays for the redemption of this world, Jesus would say, the ruler of this world will be cast out. It would be the end of the rule, the reign of Satan and the serpent over this world. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was nothing anywhere near a defeat. It was complete victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul would write in Colossians 2 regarding this crucifixion that he disarmed, Christ disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. It was when Satan was cast down. There are not two ruling over the world. There are not two rulers over this world. There is only one, Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. The serpent has been cast down. The devil has been cast down from his place of, of high rule over the world. He still, he still goes about like a lion seeking whom he can devour. But it is Jesus who reigns now. And the proclamation of his gospel is a proclamation of the victory over the one who ruled the world before. And so the judgment of this world was taking place. 
You find yourself in Christ, there is no judgment anymore. It's all done. It's all taken care of. And the ruler of this world has been taken out. And there's one Lord, and he is your Lord, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is speaking of the work that would happen on the cross. And you can just imagine, again, put yourself in, in, in the mind of the crowd or the Greeks that just came up. It would be like it says in verse 16 regarding um, the triumphal entry. All these things that are taking place, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about Him and that they had done these things to Him. And I dare say we still don't understand so often what the cross did for us, what the cross did for the world, what the cross did for the cosmos, what the cross did for all of creation what the cross did to the principalities and powers of this world, what the cross did for the new covenant and the blood of the new covenant. What did the cross do? The cross brought great victory. We are celebrating, we are celebrating the, the incarnation of God himself coming in the flesh for that very purpose, all to the glory of God. So, And so Jesus says in verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. I will draw all peoples to myself, like the Greeks who came. But he would draw all peoples to himself, not as a great teacher, not as a good example, not as a worldly deliverer, although all of those things, but rather himself as savior of the world to the glory of God. The Greeks came and said, we would see Jesus and it would be good to just pause for a moment and say, would you see Jesus this morning? Would you see Jesus this morning? To really see Jesus, we oftentimes think, oh, that would, wouldn't have been great to be there and to go and see Jesus physically, eyes, with our eyes. But how many saw Jesus that we read over and over again? They saw Jesus, they saw his miracles, they heard his teaching, and they refused to follow him. You know, you don't see Jesus and follow him with your physical eyes. You see Jesus in the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that opens blind eyes. That's the only thing that opens dead ears. That's the only thing that causes dead men to raise to life. And that is the Spirit of God where the Word of God is preached. Would you see Jesus? But the question remains, would you see him? In order to see Jesus, he must be portrayed to you in the gospel by means of his word and spirit. This is why Paul would write in Galatians 3, he says, um, he's speaking to them about not following Christ rightly, and he says to them, O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Well, how was Jesus Christ portrayed before them as crucified? In the preaching of the gospel. Hebrews 2.9, we are told, as, as the writer of Hebrews talks about, and Jesus has risen up and, he's, and he has, he has put, put down and subdued all things. And he says, but it doesn't look like it in the world today. It doesn't look that way yet. So how do we know? He says in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but we see Jesus. Now, now, he's writing to people who can't see Jesus, just like you can't see Jesus physically, okay? He says, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels. That's his incarnation. For the suffering of death, that's his crucifixion, crowned with glory and honor, that's his resurrection, exaltation, ascension, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Again, where does that glory begin? With his crucifixion, his bodily crucifixion. 
we would see Jesus in the preaching of that gospel. That's how you see Jesus. To see Jesus, in other words, another way to say it is this, to see Jesus, you must follow Jesus, and you must follow Jesus to the cross. You must follow Jesus to the cross. For those with ears to hear, this is glorious. This is the path of the seed that dies. And oh, that you would die. See, that's, that's what everybody needs to do. Everybody in this world needs to hear the gospel message. And the gospel message is this. You need to die. You need to die in Jesus Christ. You need to die and be buried with Jesus Christ. You need to die and be buried with Jesus Christ so you might be raised in Jesus Christ in new life. You don't come to Jesus and just, and just look for the crown. You come to Jesus and the cross. And you die. And you are made completely new. There is much, much fruit when a seed is buried and dies. The cross is glorious. The cross is glorious. Because the cross declares the full debt payment for our sins. We are forgiven. You are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Your sins are, are put as far as the east is from the west in Jesus Christ. Your sins are buried down and gone in Christ. The grace of God through the death of Christ has paid it all. And when Christ bids us to die, that's a gracious offer. It's a good offer. For if you are united to Jesus, you are united to him on the cross in his death and burial and so you're not free to sin, but you're rather you're freed from sin, raised without the sin nature, raised to new life without the shackles of sin upon you, without the bondage of sin. You're united to Christ, you're united to him on his cross, and you're freed from sin. Paul would write about this, and listen, in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We saw a baptism this morning. It was a baptism into death. It was a baptism into death. The old nature, done. And the penalty, and the wrath of God paid for. And new life declared in a resurrected life. Paul would go on to say, likewise you, you, Christian, now. So this is not just a message for non-Christians. <laughs> Everybody thinks the gospel, why do you preach the gospel to a bunch of Christians? Because the gospel needs to be heard by a bunch of Christians. There is daily, momentary application of the gospel for you. And here it is. Paul would say, likewise you also, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Consider yourself dead to sin, that sin that keeps on getting a grip on you, that sin that you keep on making excuses about as though you can't get rid of it. That's the sin he's talking about. You need to reckon that sin dead. You need to mortify that sin in the power of the Spirit. You need to say no more to that sin because Jesus is Lord, not the devil. You need to say Jesus is Lord, not my flesh. You need to say Jesus is Lord, not this world. Reckon your sin dead, he says. Reckon your sin dead. 
but alive instead to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, how are you going to present your life? How are you going to present yourself as alive from the dead if you haven't died? You see that? Simple little logic question for you. How are you going to present yourself as alive to God if you haven't died? Having been brought back to life in Christ requires death in Christ. We mortify our flesh and present our lives to God. Are you, just, are you stuck in yourself? Are you stuck in your sins, your lies, your lusts, your laziness, your covetousness, your greed, your grumbling, your complaining, your bitterness? There is a way out, but there's only one way out. You must die. And more fundamentally, we experience a death at the cross, which becomes a death to our self-centeredness because our life now really is all about living with the chief end to glorify God, not me. See, we're born with this bent nature that my chief end is to glorify me. My chief end is to please me. My chief end is to protect me. My chief end is to promote me. That's my chief end. That has to die. That has to die, and the chief end becomes to glorify God. And, and, then, and, and Jesus said, um, and if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Like, it, there's, there's reward on the end of this. There, there's, there's personal union and communion with the one that you're glorifying. Nevertheless, you have to put to death your self-centeredness. We would see Jesus, we say, but that means coming to the cross and letting our desires for life die. Our dreams and aspirations die. The way that we think our story should go die. Our reputation in the world die. If any of it stands in the way of our soul being with Jesus, our soul being Jesus with Jesus can never be second. Everything else must die. We must hate our life compared to the surpassing glory and excellence of knowing Christ Jesus. And Paul would write of this. Some of my favorite verses, Philippians 3. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Dying to Christ means to be raised up in new life to Christ. And that is the great celebration of the incarnation, that the path was laid for just that. So receive him. Receive him this morning, receive him anew, receive the one who died for you, and give your life to glorifying God, and you will never, ever regret it for all eternity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, Jesus said that if he was lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. Father, open our eyes and hearts to see Jesus.
to believe and to follow him, and to be glorified in your work in these lives, even this week. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand together and sing number 554, 554.